And I'm your host, Sean Grigsby. This is Cosmic Dragon, episode 20. We are going to be talking to Dale Lucas today. Whoop, whoop. But before we get into that, I want to talk about my book, since you're such a captive audience, at least until you hit the fast forward button to get to the interview. And if you're a cool person and not doing that, I want to let you know about something different this time. If you've been listening to Cosmic Dragon, you know that I talk about my books first before we jump into the interview. I talk about Smoke Eaters and I talk about Daughters of Forgotten Light. Well, this time we're getting down to award season. And hopefully I'm catching you early enough with this podcast. But I want to let you know that I am up for the Campbell Award, which is given out at the Worldcon, the World Science Fiction Convention. It's not a Hugo, but it's given during the ceremony for the Hugos. Um, I just want to be nominated. I really don't care about winning. <laughs> Seriously, I, I don't. And I have no delusions of winning a Hugo for any of my stuff. But if you want to vote for me for that or any other thing, I highly encourage it because without people like you, without wonderful readers like you, that stuff couldn't happen. And it's a really tough year, too. So I know this is kind of like a Hail Mary long shot, uh, fourth quarter, whatever sports reference metaphor you want to use. So. If you enjoyed Smoke Eaters and or Daughters of Forgotten Light, I'd appreciate your vote if you think it's worthy of any particular award out there that you know. This is a call to remind you. That's all this is. So, let's kick things off with Dale Lucas. Yeah, no, it's and uh, it's pretty cool. I actually uh, I went and listened to uh, a bunch of your podcasts last week, and uh, you're pretty fantastic. Well, thanks, I, man. You're, you are an excellent interviewer. Cool. So, I'm, I'm that I on appreciate top that. of being a published author, <laughs> jack of all trades. By the way, uh, for everyone listening, Dale Lucas is our guest today. This is episode twenty, and uh, he, hi, that's me. That's him. And uh, he's another Orbit author. I seem to interview a lot of Orbit authors, uh, basically, I think, because I'm friends with more Orbit authors than anybody else besides Angry Robot, of course. Uh, So it just kind of falls that way. But he also has two recent books out that look very similar to Smoke Eaters and and its sequels. But I will give him credit. He he had it first. Actually, my uh, publisher sent me a picture of... uh, first watch as an example uh to give to the cover artist on what um, we were going to do uh-huh. ours. yeah yeah no i <laughs> won't be that know. guy yeah i won't be that guy who claims like <laughs> no it, it just there was no similarities at all it just was coincidence no no i mean obviously we didn't oh, like copy no, it no. exactly no but i mean cover I, i've noticed that cover design in the publishing world uh it always seems to run in these cycles where like certain concepts certain images certain tropes like bubble to the surface and then for like a couple of years you'll see those images popping up again and again and again i think i even remember seeing a a thing online once where someone took a bunch of different books by different publishers Yep. Um, and compared like the 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 layouts of their covers and showed how similar they all were. Well, I can so, tell you all the spaceship covers. They, I, I can't tell one ship from an, another. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unless they have something painted on the side that's extremely unique, like the the Memphis Bell or something. But right. other than that, I it's it's a, it's a fucking spaceship. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. No, you know? no, it's it's cool. And yeah, it, it was really funny because I was seeing smoke eaters popping up um, 
you know, online and stuff for months before it was out. And it didn't even occur to me until like after I've been staring at it for months, it was like, oh, hey, wait, it's yeah. a badge with a dragon. <laughs> now, of course, I'm, yours... I'm really observant sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You did finally catch it. Uh, now, you, just to let listeners know who haven't seen the cover, and I, I highly encourage everybody to go check out uh, Dale's books, first of all. But uh, to look at the cover, it's uh, it's got a shield. Dale's is more of a cop-type shield, a police shield, uh, where mine is, of course, the Maltese Cross uh, for firefighters. But both are shields, and both have a dragon. Dale's is uh, metal and kind of part of the whole shield thing, and there's two crossed swords behind the dragon where it's smoke eaters it's <laughs> and uh ash kickers by the way it's two crossed lances so oh, I, nice. I didn't even notice that but i'm like shit that's another detail that's pretty similar um but they're very different books uh the funny thing dale is i, I don't think i've told you this uh and i can't show the cover yet maybe next week but your second one has f- flames in the back of course it's called friendly fire yes well guess what <laughs> Oh, Ash Kickers, Ash Kickers is about a phoenix on top of dragons and everything, but it's just flaming all over the goddamn thing. So, oh. so it's it, they're so very similar, like even first book and second book. So this is going to be interesting. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious! <laughs> what are the odds on that? <laughs> I, I have no idea. Now, let me ask you this: Is there going to be a third book? Yes, uh, I was contracted for three, and so the third book, uh, I actually just turned in my more or less final draft of that um, a few weeks ago, and, uh, you know, now we'll have page proofs and stuff like that going, but the the text is pretty much locked. Awesome. Um, So, yeah, that'll be out next summer. I believe it's July. Holy shit. Yeah. Guess what? (laughs) Oh. Sean Grigsby is stalking oh, me. I know. Apparently, my publisher is. Um, Ash Kickers comes out July second. Oh, I actually think that might be ahead of it. I want to say mine's like July nineteenth or something like that. They okay. just uh, released the uh, the release date like a couple of weeks ago. And I want to say it was the nineteenth. Um, <laughs> but all of mine have. You know, the first one was out in late July. The second one was out in mid August, and now the third one's going to be mid-july again so okay um they're trying to do that year apart thing oh so wait so 20 yeah mine is coming out 2019 because yeah, friendly fire because friendly fire is already out yeah out friendly august. fire came out this past august cool that that was book two man so. that's interesting mine was actually slated for uh, june and then they emailed me and they said hey we looked over the schedule to reconfirm it, and we're going to move you to July. Not sure why, but eh, whatever. I'll be a July fourth book. It, it, Friendly Fire was actually uh, actually moved like that too. I think they originally wanted to put it out earlier, sometime in like June, uh, but some uh, the the book took a little longer than we expected, so oh, okay. it, it got held up a bit. Well, and then that'll be your three. Uh, any word or maybe rumor? As to beyond them. that, I have no idea what to expect at this point. I got you. Um, we're, we are uh, in the process of talking about such things, um, but uh, I don't know exactly where things are going. I would definitely love to continue the series the way I've set it up and the way the books are written. It's not really meant to close 
uh, it's meant to just kind of go on as long as I want it to go on. Right. Um, so I, I would love to revisit these characters and, oh, and I guess for your, uh, for your listeners, I'll give them the, the quick and dirty version, which is, um, the, the fifth ward series is basically lethal weapon in middle earth. Um, (laughs) it's basically i I took the the cop buddy movies i grew up watching that i loved like lethal weapon or 48 hours or you know the last boy scout or whatever and i transferred that that vibe into a sort of pre-modern uh medievalish renaissance era type world with uh, humans orcs elves and dwarves and uh, the story is about a couple of partners, a uh, uh, human runaway and um, an obstreperous dwarf who uh, spend their time patrolling the mean streets of a, of a big, huge port city called Yanara. And um, so, yeah, each story is kind of a self-contained adventure on its own with those two guys. And I would love to take them to other places in the future, but I've got other things I'd like to do, too. So we'll just have to see what, uh, what comes to pass. Have you started on any of those other things yet? Or there's still I do. I do have a new thing that I'm working on. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, except to say that uh, it uh, it brings things into the real world a little bit. Um, I guess you could call it a type of urban fantasy because it's set in New York City, but it's like the 1920s. Oh, okay. Um, so, which is an era I've, I've written in before with some of my, uh, my, my small press stuff, but this is something unrelated to that. Um, so yeah, and it's, uh, there's some magic and some dark gods and cool stuff going on, uh, in the jazz age. So see, that's interesting because, you know, obviously you have urban fantasy that's m- more modern. Let's call it like today. Uh, right. Yeah. This year. And then when you do the same kind of thing, but just move it back, they call it alternate history. Even yeah, though it's suddenly it's something it's else. An urban yeah. fa- and then you got shit like me where it's an urban fantasy uh, or I didn't intend it to, to be that, but that's what it's been described as. And it's in the future and then people don't know what the fuck to call it. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, and it just it just sort of plays up the whole notion that labels are really only useful for helping readers find other books like the stuff they've already liked. Right. Um, and, uh, e- and even those labels, as exact as they can sometimes get, um, uh, sometimes bend a little bit. You know, oh, I, yeah. I sometimes like to joke with people that, that the Fifth Ward, even though it's set in a sort of classic medievalish sort of Renaissance type uh, fantasy realm, um, that it's basically urban fantasy. Right. You know, because it's set in this very dense, complex urban setting, you know, it's it's about it's not about bucolic countrysides and forests and caves and old ruins. It's like, you know, it's a it's a living, breathing place uh, with a lot going on on a daily basis. So it just doesn't happen to have uh, firearms or, you know, computers or anything like that. <laughs> what did you think of the Netflix movie Bright with Will Smith? <sighs> I well, when I first I first heard about that, probably about maybe a month or two after uh, the Fifth Ward was sold, and um, I was immediately like, "Ah, son of a bitch!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I you finally, didn't you didn't I go had an I- idea that I thought was kind of kind of cool and kind of. Uh, you know, interesting and, and unique, and, and unique. here comes Will Smith to snatch it right out of my hands. <laughs> but um, I'm sure but that helped your sales, maybe, maybe. I, I certainly hope so. And people, I've seen a lot of reviews where people compare the two. Oh, really? Um, 
You know, they and yeah, they bear a passing resemblance if you say a fantasy cop buddy movie, but theirs is more what you would call actual urban fantasy since it's set in the modern world, all right. one alternate historical modern world. Um, and uh, I, when I finally got around to watching it, I actually enjoyed it. I thought the critics that tore it to pieces were really unkind. It's not a perfect movie. It's got its problems. Right. Um, I'm a little, I, I think some of the world building is kind of sloppy and half-assed. Um, but, but aside from that, it's a fun movie. It's a, it's a good entertaining movie. And I like David Ayer as a, as a director. I've always been a fan of his anyway. Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 overall, I really enjoyed it. And it was written by the son of the guy who directed American Werewolf in London. Yes. Uh, which is always Max Landis. Yes. I believe. Yes. John Landis's son. Yeah. I once, oh, I, I used to live in LA, um, trying to ply my wares as a screenwriter for a few years and failing miserably. And, uh, I once met John Landis at a, at a, uh, an office building where I had been to a doctor's appointment and we were both waiting for our cars to be brought in by valet at the same time. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, Oh my God, you're John Landis. He's like, yes, that's right. And he holds out his hand and he says, who are you? And I'm like me, I'm nobody. What? You should have said, oh, I'm, I'm so-and-so, I'm a screenwriter, but I, I, I just, yeah, that, that sounds that cool. Yeah, that could be why my screenwriting career never really took off. You know? Oh, man, you <laughs> got it. Very, I wasn't very good at that sort of thing. You got to uh, be that self, shameless self-promoter. Oh, got to do God. it. So bad at it. <laughs> and it was funny. His To his credit, his response was, oh, come on, everybody's somebody. And then oh, his car wow. arrived, so He's like, had oh, to let him go. You missed your <laughs> shot, buddy. Damn Thanks it. for recognizing me, at least. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah. When I saw uh, Bright, I, I saw the dragon in the background when they kind of showed the, uh, the L.A. skyline or wherever they're at, and yeah. uh, th- that's all they showed. I'm like, hold the fucking phone! There's a dragon back there, <laughs> and we're talking about orc gangs and shit. No, there's a, dra- this, there's right, a well, dragon. That's an example of what I'm talking about with the with the lazy world building. Like, I would think that dragons randomly flying around in the sky would be a big freaking deal. Yeah, like, they're what, not like um, elephants relegated yeah. to some like uh, that's got that's got major uh, you know major ramifications for air traffic control and that sort of thing. Totally. Um, and or even things as simple as uh, you know still calling it Los Angeles. Like are you telling me the entire history of the world and the different hemispheres and It's always the, been Los Angeles. Yeah, it's the elves it, don't everything's call it. still the same even though we've got three other uh, or at least a couple other magical races running around in the world. Um, yeah. That throw LA? their languages into the mix, you know. I figured the elves would like get way farther if they lived on the cheap say in arkansas or, or florida <laughs> you know <laughs> they live on they live on compounds and communes yeah you know but, but they, hey whatever that's people don't do rural fantasy very much you know no it's true they don't at least not that not in a modern setting that's that that is pretty maybe that's the the next uh you know the, next the, the, uh, I the next, jump the next on big it. thing I better exactly. jump on it. Do it, man. I wrote an urban fantasy that takes place in Memphis. That's the one uh, with the uh, Dio devil. Oh, yeah. In the the back. one you, were, you put up the other day. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. That takes place in Memphis. But that's still a major city, so that's, I'd still call it urban fantasy. That's Yeah, no, I would totally, I would totally say it's that. Uh, and I was thinking about how you describe your books as, uh, you know, like a 90s or 80s buddy cop movie. Uh, with fantasy uh, in yeah. Middle Earth, uh, one review 
of Smoke Eaters said this, this, the dialogue and everything sounds like a 90s buddy cop movie. And I'm like, fuck you. That's a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when, when, yeah, someone reads the book and they say something that they think is like undercutting you and you're like, no, that's kind of what I was going for. Yeah. The the thing I keep getting on that front is um, the only other author there have been a few authors who have kind of done the whole Night Watch, City Watch thing in a few different fantasy books. Um, but the only one who's really famous for it is Terry Pratchett. Right. And he wrote an entire series about the the Night Watch and Ankhmore Pork, which I have never read. Um, I'm aware of its existence, and I'm aware of Terry Pratchett and how important he is. But since I'm not big into um, comedic or satiric fantasy, then I've never really read him. Right. Um, but uh, I see re- these reviews all the time where people are like, well, this was okay, but it really wasn't as good as Terry Pratchett. Like, <laughs> I'm not even trying to be no, like I'm Terry not trying Pratchett. To, trying to be, why compare me to another author? What, yeah, what or at least compare me to one that I think the, the aesthetic kind of matches. I don't think the aesthetic matches there. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, they're no uh, Tolstoy. What the <laughs> Yeah, well, no, no you know, shit. No shit. <laughs> Uh, anyway, well, tell me what what's what separates Friendly Fire from First Watch because they're both the uh, the Fifth Ward is the name of the series. But what, what yeah. what's where's the this story going now? Um, basically, well, in the first book, uh, we meet our main character Rim, who is uh, he's a human runaway uh, trying to get away from his past and start anew in a new place. And that book is is structured more like a classic sort of police procedural and mystery where the entire thing is from Rim's point of view. Um, we learned, or not first person, but third person limited. And we sort of learn things and encounter clues and everything as he does. Um, and everything is gradually revealed through the course of the story. For the second one, I wanted to open things up a bit and um, tell a bigger story with a few more point-of-view characters, and it's not really a mystery. Some readers have actually complained about that, but I guess that's just a, some people like it that way and some people don't. But I, I, one thing I would just say is that if I'm, if I'm lucky enough to be able to continue this series in the long term, I don't want every book to be exactly the same in terms of structure and feel some might be mysteries some might not be mysteries you know it it all some might just be one point of view and some might be many it just depends on whatever particular story i happen to be telling so in the second one um what we've basically got is uh, a labor dispute in the city gradually uh, spiraling out of control and um descending into open violence including some black magic and murder so Aha. yes which always goes well together like, yes like peas and carrots yeah exactly <laughs> and the, the the fire of the title the friendly fires it's basically the fact that um uh, th- there is an arson that kind of kicks things off and oh, damn it dale yes yeah, sorry there's and uh <laughs> part of the uh, part of the one of the subplots has to do with um the tor uh, the dwarf torval um, having to sort of deal with his own people who he has sort of a bad relationship with. Um, so I guess that's the friendly part and the fire is all through there. I was pretty delighted when I saw the the first uh, test things for the cover, though, and it had this giant Michael Bay fireball on there. That was, Hell yes. <laughs> that's what I thought was missing from Smoke Eaters, and that's why I was like, that's not why I wrote it, Phoenix. But I thought, well, See? we got a Phoenix. I want some fire. And, They're uh, just saving it for the second time around, buddy. That's all. You, hey, always up the game. 
I can't yeah. stand when I read a book and they either kept it on the same level and never took it further, or worse, they they like backed up a step uh, in the intensity and, and and all that. So it sounds like you've done that with with your second book, and and you got the third one uh, coming out in July. So, yeah. so uh, I've had a really good experience at Orbit. Everybody there who I've dealt with has been super cool and super supportive. Um, so if, if I'm lucky enough to be able to sort of, you know, continue my writing and publishing journey with them, I am definitely, uh, I'm definitely down for that. But, uh, even if not, I can't, I can't really complain. They've, they've been absolutely wonderful, uh, to work with. And the impression I get talking to the other authors who debuted in the same year as me, um, is that everybody's had a pretty, a pretty consistent experience. So clearly those folks at Orbit are doing something right on both sides of the pond, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. I've heard the same thing. I've, I've heard nothing but good things about Orbit. I yeah. mean, the only thing was like d- during that whole Hashed versus Amazon thing, but they, they couldn't control that. Right. At all. That's I mean, that that's like the big the big parent company. And, uh, you know, that's yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. like being kids in a divorce. You're just going to go hide in the bedroom and not be there when mommy and daddy yeah. fight. Don't blame um, the kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We both still love you. Well, weird stuff. I'm glad it's over. But uh, so, so yeah. it sounds like you you really enjoy working with Orbit. You, you mentioned the the one editor picked you up. Did you go through? Did you find an agent first, or did the how did that go yes. down? Yes, I've had an agent for since about 2011. Um, and she uh, contacted me. I had contacted her many years before when I was shopping one book around. And, um, you know, she wasn't interested in that one, but she came back to me many years later and just kind of sent this sort of email like, hey, just wanting to check in and see how things are going with you. And uh, I was able to be like, oh, well, I have a new book now. Would you like to take a look at that? And based on that, she took me on and uh, she shopped that around. And nobody bought it. Um, and then she shopped around another one that I had written in the interim between the last time we spoke, and nobody bought it. Um, and after a couple years of her doing that, uh, I handed her first watch, and I think I gave it to her in the spring, like April or May. And it was, I had an offer by August. Um, this is 2017. Right. It was surprising to me too. I had kind of settled in with, okay, here's another three years of sending a book around somewhere, seeing if anybody wants to buy it. Nobody's going to want to buy it. (laughs) And, uh, and, but lo and behold, you know, that, that one got interest pretty quickly and it was, uh, it was, uh, it came along at a great time too. This is also a, a great story. I love to tell people just to illustrate how, uh, the universe can help you out sometimes exactly when you need it. At the time, my uh, my son, who's now six, but was uh, he was five at that time, um, he was uh, looking at having some pretty serious surgery for some health problems. And uh, I live in Florida, but we were going to be taking him to a hospital up in Minneapolis to get that surgery done. And uh, I was in Minneapolis doing a, a preliminary meeting with the doctors there about what was going to be required, uh, what the surgery entailed, how long it was going to take. And they had said, yeah, you're going to have to plan on being up here for about three months. Oh, wow. 
and it was like, uh, excuse me, like, you know, I have a nine to five day job. How am I supposed to just like stop that for three months and relocate up here? So as I was trying to figure out how to literally the first day I was there having these meetings with these doctors and getting that news and starting to freak out about what on earth am I going to do? I get a phone call from a New York area code, and I ignored it because I don't know anybody in New York. Oh, um, come on, Dale. <laughs> no, you should have known that. Exactly. Then it, then it occurred to me, I'm like, wait, I have an agent, and she's in New York. We had only ever communicated by email. And uh, so I immediately called back, and lo and behold, yeah, she said that, that Orbit was interested and wanted to make an offer, and it was like, uh, what? Really? Yeah, wow. <laughs> right, right now? <laughs> this is great. <laughs> so. Wow. Uh, pretty uh, pretty astounding the way things can can work out sometimes. i love stories like that and i love when that kind of stuff happens to me because it's just like oh yes it's just, it's <laughs> we like, all love when it happens to <laughs> us <laughs> right well i love it when it happens to other people too it's awesome uh that's awesome that it worked out did you have any other publishers because uh, i'm sure your agent reached out to them but did, did you have anybody fighting for you there were nobody was fighting. <laughs> um, you know, there were there were a few others that showed some interest. But at the end of the day, Orbit Orbit was the uh, they were the ones that that really wanted it. Um, so it was a pretty easy decision to make. Um, but uh, and I'm glad because I you know you hear things about other uh, other publishing houses. I don't know how true anything is, or but it, I just know that this first experience for me, and I'm you know being optimistic and saying this is a first experience. Who knows what the future holds? Um, this first experience has been really great. So that gives me something going forward to sort of measure everything else by and right. to say. You know, okay, you at least need to, you know, measure up to these expectations um, and and treat me in this fashion. And if I'm not being at least treated that way, then I don't really feel appreciated, do I? Right. Um, so it was it worked out well that way. I've heard horror stories about, you know, some folks landing at a landing at a publisher and, you know, their first books end up being total nightmares or they feel like they're just kind of, uh, you know, discarded or, or disregarded. And that's, you know. I, I lucked out, and that that has not been my experience. That's good. That's good. I, I, yeah, yeah. It, it, three months. Wow. You know, it, it, I I don't think I've ever told this story on the podcast, but uh, I signed with my agent with Daughters of Forgotten Light, not Smoke Eaters. I, I wrote Smoke Eaters after Daughters of Forgotten Light, mm -hmm. and Daughters was on sub for like a year and a half, like forever. Yeah, <laughs> or at least it felt like forever. Uh, so I had time to write and finish and edit Smoke Eaters for my agent, and then that went out on sub two, and then it, they both ended up at Angry Robot, um, which was nice. But wow, relish that three months. Good grief. Yeah, I mean, hey, don't get me wrong. And like, and like I said, that's that's three months after uh, you know before that. What she had been she had been repping me for six years. Shopping oh. two different books around before before that three month sale came in, so that was a that was a hard earned three month sale. <laughs> good, good point. Good point. Now, yeah. you also have another series of books. For instance, uh, Doc Voodoo. Now, did yes. you have an agent for that one, or did you no do that yourself? Those those were um, done through uh, a small press back when um, I want to say around two thousand seven. Um, I was working on what was going to be sort of my second, 
I worked on a couple. I, I had written like two big novels as as what I say a serious writer since about college when I really said, okay, I'm doing this to try and get published and to try in the long run to make a living at it. And um, the the book I wrote through my college years and just after I shopped that around and nobody was interested because it was garbage. Um, and then the second one that I did and um, shopped around, that was a tough one too. That was one of the ones that my agent eventually ended up uh, trying to sell for me and uh, trying to place for me and couldn't. And I was working on another one. Um, and that got interrupted with uh, a divorce and I moved from Florida out to California for a bit. And uh, I, my process was a little blocked. I couldn't quite make progress on that second book I was wor- working on, or third book, rather. And um, the Doc Voodoo thing just came to me. I, I, at the time, I seemed to be getting assaulted on all sides by stuff looking like the old pulps. I would go to bookstores, and I would see these displays where they had reprints of, like, the Doc Savage and Shadow Pulps right. from the 30s. Um, that was around the time when The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by uh, Michael Chabon was making a big splash, um, okay. which is a, a, an awesome... It's a, it's a literary novel, but it's about these two guys who create a superhero who's in the 1930s who basically becomes as big as Superman or any other. Right. And so it's, it's like a literary novel that's a love letter to comic books and pulp magazines. Right. Um, and it's so I kept getting hit with this pulp, pulp, pulp. And something in me was like, yeah, that's kind of my... That, that, that's my tradition. That's what I work in. Um, the ace paperbacks I grew up reading, the stuff I kind of want to do now, it's, it's all hearkening back to the pulps. Oh, wait. And, and I would read about the incredible output these guys had. Yeah. Um, I mean, Lester Dent, the guy who wrote all the Doc, uh, Doc Savage books, uh, it was, he would put out something like 100,000 words a month like for publication because <laughs> he had to deliver two 50,000 word uh, novellas like every er, novels for the pulps, like every twice a month. Holy Un- cow. Unbelievable. So I was like, well, maybe it would help me if I kind of jumped into something and tried to do something fun and cool and crazy, like a pulp story and just tried to do it as fast as I could to see what would happen. And that was the birth of Doc Voodoo. I basically was like, okay, I want it to be in that era. So it's set during Prohibition um, in, uh, in Harlem. And the, the main character is uh, um, an African-American uh, World War I veteran who's a physician by day and a voodoo-powered vigilante crime fighter by night. Yeah. And um, I had written that. And I also managed to finish the other book I was working on. And a friend of mine from college had read Doc Voodoo in manuscript. And I was busy trying to shop around the other book. And he was like, hey, what are you doing with Doc Voodoo? I'm like, oh, nothing. It's just sitting here. I did it and it's finished, but I'm not really trying to sell it right now. I'm just concentrating on this other one. And he said, well, I've been thinking. I know all these writers and I'd like to start a small press. So I want to start a small press and I want Doc Voodoo to be the, the first book. And I was like... Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it, it was a, a great opportunity. And it, it came along at a great time when I was I was feeling really down about my prospects as a writer and about getting anywhere as a writer. Um, I've been trying to shop stuff and sell stuff for years, and uh, I'd also been working on the uh, you know working the screenwriting front, and that wasn't going anywhere. Um, 
So when that opportunity arose, it was like, okay, cool. I can put it out. It'll be a real book. It'll be a digital book. It'll be a physical book. People can actually read it. It'll actually exist. And um, I, we went with it. And we ended up doing, we did two Doc Voodoo books. Um, plus, I put out a, uh, we did a digital only, like a collection of three short stories. And then we also put out a, uh, a novella, like a horror novella that was a Lovecraftian thing called No Surrender. Um, and uh, yeah, so for my, those were all my first publications, those, those, those four things. And, um, you know, it, that was a good education in the work it takes to get people to know that your book exists when it's not being marketed by a major corporate publisher. Yeah, I'm jealous as hell of all you guys at Orbit. <laughs> for real. <laughs> well, and it, it, I mean, the, the, you don't even realize. I, I've, I've met people constantly who talk about wanting to self-publish or publish with a small press. And I think small presses are great. I even think self-publishing is great at certain times as long as you know what you're up against. Right. Um, but you have to understand that if you're putting anything out and it doesn't have a corporate marketing machine behind it, it's going to be an uphill battle just getting anybody to even know it exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is there is no amount of tweeting. <laughs> oh my or, god! Yeah, and Lord knows or I've Facebook tried. posting that's gonna that's gonna get uh, thousands and thousands of people to buy your book. <laughs> so, so what does Orbit do um, that just takes that to the next level for you? Well, I think they just they, for one thing they can get the book in bookstores, right? Um, which is another thing that a small press may have a hard time doing. Right. Sometimes local book, local bookstores will carry stuff by local authors, but beyond that, getting a an independent book in a bookstore is really difficult. Um, so the first thing is they just get books in actual bookstores, and the second thing is. Uh, they have a huge distribution network all over the world. They actually do a lot of marketing and promotion at um, literary conventions and book buying conventions. Um, uh, I believe there's even uh, there's a, a pretty pretty powerful online presence. Um, so all of that has has made a huge difference. Um, certainly more so than the the few local things I could show up at. Uh, in my doc voodoo days, you know, go to a, go to a, uh, you know, local literary convention, or I think once we, we got a table at the Miami international book fair and trying to like hand by hand, Hey, do you want to buy my book? Hey, do you want to buy my book? Yeah. Hey, you should totally check this out. It's really awesome. Right. Wow. So yeah, the, the corporate, the corporate juggernaut is good for something. And uh, when people try to talk down on it too much, and that's not even that's not even counting like getting great editorial feedback. Right. Um, having a great editor is a really important thing. Um, having actual, uh, you know, cover designers and uh, pe lots of people. There are so many moving parts to creating a book and getting it out in the world that it's nice to know that there's an expert handling each of those moving parts instead of one guy in his office at home trying to do all of it. Right. Because um, I don't know about you, but I don't have the, the wherewithal for all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, I try. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, but even even as an author, even as a really hustling author, there's yeah, still yeah, only Yeah, it, it only so takes you, you so, so far. That's very, 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 very true. 
Um, yeah, especially if you're not independently wealthy and able to devote your full your full time and effort to it. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I don't even think Nicholas Eames has to try. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, well, Nick Nick wrote a great book that made a huge splash. So he just he just sort of like jumped in and nailed that right out of the gate. Yeah, I'm I'm horrendous disly jealous because you know he's he's also such a nice guy yes um and it's like man does is is nick so great at everything he's a really nice guy and he wrote a great book that conquered the world (laughs) i mean yeah it's just you can't even hate the dude because he's nice so no of course not yeah it's and that's that's been another another one of the great experiences with working with orbit i got to be part of this little family of uh all all the other off in 2017 i've i've uh reached out to pretty much all of them and tried to keep in touch or at the very least tried to say hey i read your book hey i really loved your book and maybe talk a little shop or whatever um but it's cool to feel that way it's it's cool to feel like you're kind of part of a family and you can um and you can share that with people um, because otherwise writing is a really solitary, lonely pursuit. Yes, very um, much so. Especially for those of us who don't get to do it full-time as, a, um, as our main paid job because we spend 40 hours of our week doing whatever our day job is, which probably has nothing to do with our writing. I know mine doesn't. Right. And... Um, and so even when you could be sort of uh, telling yourself, well, hey, I get to at least work with really cool people or share all these insights about the thing I love. Yeah, 40 hours of my week's got nothing to do with writing and I don't get to talk shop and I don't get to uh, talk about the things that excite me or how to solve certain narrative problems or, or whatever. So that's why any opportunity for community with, among writers is, is really a, a, a beautiful thing yeah and thank goodness for the internet <laughs> yeah <laughs> being able to communicate i mean hell that's how we're doing this podcast right now how, how the hell did people Isn't do it awesome? back in the day had to go down to yeah. a radio station or some shit man old people you had this it rough my, back in the day this is my uh, <laughs> this is also my first podcast i've been able to um take part in that wasn't somebody's house that i could drive to drive to so really (laughs) thank you for inviting me on hey yeah we're going international dale that's it you me and our shield and dragon interview me yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh man well hey we're gonna wrap things up and i always end these podcasts asking my guests if there was anything you know now as a writer through your publishing career that you wished you knew back in the day when you first started? Uh, how hard it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't necessarily know that it would have changed much um, except to maybe light a fire under my ass and get me to um, try to finish things. And more. I, when you're not working on a deadline... I don't know about you, but I don't create deadlines if nobody's imposing them. Um, So I would take a long time to finish my old books. I mean, the the first three I wrote each took like five years apiece. Wow. Um, And it's because that's also part of the way I like to work. I like to really plan, and then I like to write, and then I like to be able to let it sit for a long time and go back to it, and I'll do three or four drafts to get it where I want it to be. 
before I start sending it out and shopping it around. And on the one hand, I always feel really good about getting it out in the world at that point. But on the other hand, it wasted a lot of time. Um, so yeah, maybe if I could, if I could uh, impress upon younger writers or writers just starting out, that the one of the big things is you want your output to be as good as it can possibly be, but you also want to get it out there regularly. Yep. And uh, you don't want to spin your wheels. Um, granted, there are exceptions to every rule. Uh, Patrick Rothfuss would probably argue with me on this, but you don't necessarily <laughs> want to spin your wheels on the same project for 10 or 12 or 15 years, nope. as some writers are capable of doing. I, not for me. Myself included. <laughs> we, we've talked about that on the podcast before. I think it was Nicholas Eames or somebody else. Um, and I talked about Patrick Rothfuss, uh, who I've met and who's great and who's nice. But yeah, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to spend my whole career on, on one series. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I just, well, and especially when you're still in, in the early stages where you're just trying to sell something and get established. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, come on, I know you want to put good work out there, but, uh, you're you, the, the key I, I think I found is just output and, uh, uh, just pro- being prolific. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's a numbers game. The more stuff you throw out there, the more likely you are to finally get a hit on something. I don't set myself a deadline on uh, projects if I don't have one, but I do write a thousand words a day if I can. Yeah, I, I try to stay on a pretty regular schedule. I usually write early in the morning, and um, I I, tr- I kind of think of it. I always aim for two thousand words, but sometimes it's more like twelve hundred or fifteen hundred. But that's still um, good. That's still yeah, great. no, and I think that's the key is just steady progress, keeping at it regularly. I know some people don't like to write every day or can't write every day. That's fine. Just some kind of pattern, even if it's you know a couple days a week, or you just want to keep working on it. You don't just want it to sit for long, long periods without knowing when's the next time you're going to be able to jump into it. Right. For sure. At least that's what works for me. <laughs> Words of wisdom from Dale Lucas. Uh, his first two books in the fifth ward are out. Those are First Watch and Friendly Fire. And then the third one is coming out in July uh, after my sequel, Ash Kickers. Um, and uh, be sure to check that out. What's the title of the third one? Third one is The Fifth Ward, Good Company. Good Company. Uh, <laughs> I just one, think that Bad one's... Company. Like, that's... Referencing that. <laughs> right, right, that was actually one of the titles I suggested, but they shot that down. So and you're like, well, okay, uh, no bad company. How about um, good company? But yeah, that that one's a that one's a road story. That one's a road movie. Oh, awesome. we get outside the city in that one. Nice, Dale. We wish you well. Sean. Thanks so much for <laughs> for coming on Cosmic Dragon. This has been episode twenty. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 